Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have to come together to talk about something that I know is very important to you, and that is hospitality. And I feel that uh, it is important. Just the challenges we've had in getting the presentation make me know that it's something that uh, the devil would like to foil. And so, Lord, we just pray that your angels would put a hedge around us and that our minds would be focused and that we would gain a blessing from on high. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, hospitality is something... I'm just going to start without my presentation. I have to have something here to see. I mean, how will I progress ahead? Well, I'll just start talking, and if they... Oh, no, I, I'll just... Yeah, I'll just... I'm not going to really get into it yet until you can see. We're going to have to fly. Um, somebody is helping me. I, he went back to, yeah, we just don't have what we need, I guess. Oh, this is always my fear, okay? I'm not a techie person. I don't, I, 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 but anyway, we're going to get into it just the same. If you could see the first slide, you'd see a picture of my table. And it was given to us in the uh, 2000... And six, probably. So I've had it a while. It's an oak, I mean, it's an ash wood table. And if I took a close-up picture of it, you would see it is very scarred and very marred. And just recently, I guess it was probably around um, Thanksgiving time, I wanted to write to the person who gave me that table and thank them. And in the process of doing that, I decided, well, let me just calculate, I mean, roughly, how many, I wonder how many meals I've fed at this table. Now, I'm a mother of five children, um, and so just that makes quite a few, seven of us. Um, but then we have a lot, we have a lot of visitors. So anyway, I felt like I, I estimated on a conservative note, and I figured, 80,000 meals. That's a lot of food. Can you imagine how much money? <laughs> About 80,000 meals. So as in preparation for this, I started talking to the older generation when hospitality was something that was the norm. Um, my father-in-law, his sister, um, they had home. They had a home that was constantly open, and my husband's aunt Ruth. When I talked to her about hospitality, she just went on and on. She said, "You know, I don't remember a time in my childhood when we didn't have someone living with us, or we didn't have people around our table." Now she's in her 90s now, so that gives you some perspective of when we're talking about. And so it was just delightful really to hear their memories and I said do you have any regrets that your parents were that hospitable she said none none she said it was a huge blessing in my life and we've tried to do the same so she gave me the definition her definition I'm just gonna get into my so she gave me the definition I said aunt Ruth what do you think the difference between hospitality and entertainment is 
you can think about that, but we don't have time to entertain too much. I'm just going to tell you what she said. Tell me if you don't agree. She said, entertaining is to impress. Hospitality is to bless. Isn't that beautiful? Profound. Profound. That is exactly what hospitality is. So the title of our presentation today was Why Rekindle? I mean, Rekindle. Rekindling hospitality. So the question is, why do we have to rekindle it? We have to rekindle it because life has changed a lot. And now people are extremely busy. Okay, so there's the busyness aspect. There's the fact that the media now holds this high standard. You know, you watch television. I mean, I don't watch television. We haven't had a television our whole married life. Praise God for that. What a blessing it's been. But I, I still know what's out there. We still travel. We still see it. I still know the way it is because of the way it was when I did watch a lot of it. It holds a standard of living that most of us don't live. It holds a standard of houses that most of us don't have. And it makes us feel insecure. I mean, I live in a barn. I'll tell you, I live in a barn. And that's a whole different story. Um, it was an old tobacco barn. And through the course of God's leading in our life, we had to let go of our house that we had built. And we renovated the barn. It's a nice barn, though. Don't feel sorry for me. I haven't, don't feel a bit sorry for myself. It's a lovely barn. Um, so there is that pressure. The other thing is that hospitality can be a bit stressful. Um, not as stressful as technology, but <laughs> it can be a bit stressful. Um, it can be expensive. Have you experienced that? It's expensive to be hospitable. And it's not really necessary today, like it used to be. So hospitality has become an industry, right? If you type into Google hospitality, it's going to bring up the industry of hospitality. And I had a slide here, but I'm just going to, oops. Um, so just for interest's sake, well, I can, uh, let me read this to you. This is out of USA Today. Modern hotels um, built with the sole, sole purpose of providing hotel accommodations launched in American cities at the end of the 18th century. New York's first hotel, the City Hotel, opened in 1792. At the beginning of the 19th century, America's first five-star hotel, the Tremont House in Boston, began welcoming guests. Now listen to the things they tout as their, what they have to offer. Single or double rooms, um, soap, <laughs> locked doors, and washing bowls. Uh, this was very appealing to the wealthy travelers. Many famous hotels, such as the Waldorf, um, opened in the uh, 1920s. Over the course of the 20th century, business organizations and corporations took over ownership and management of most of the large hotels in the country. So, you know, there we have now where we had hotels before, now large corporations are taking over them. So I'll just give you a rundown of, of some that I found. Um, 
the, the Kings Inn. Please try to just ignore them, and <laughs> that's what I'm trying to do. Um, the, uh, the Knights Inn Hotel opened in 1974. Uh, La Quinta Inn opened in 1968. Uh, I don't know what that one is. Some other hotel opened in 1995. Days Inn in 1970. Red Roof Inn in 1973. Uh, Super 8 in 1974. So you see, it was in the 70s that the hotels became very much um, just a commercial business. So hotels aren't the only thing that have to do with hospitality. The other thing is, oh, we finally have it. There's my barn house. <laughs> Listen to this. The origins of restaurants. Originally simple taverns for travelers served a limited range of food and drinks in basic surroundings. So simple food, simple drinks, and basic surroundings. In 1670, the first American coffee shop opened in Boston, and several non-alcoholic, interesting that too, non-alcoholic uh, beverages were served. During the 19th century, an increasing number of restaurants opened across the United States and both cities and in both cities and towns. Restaurants, welcomed a wide um, availability of commercially frozen foods during the 50s, and this led to the more affordable menus. The 1917, excuse me, the 1970s heralded the opening of the fast food. Right? That's in my lifetime. Okay, let's see if we can get by here. Here's Aunt Ruth's definitions. Okay, so what does God say about hospitality? Um, and this, Romans 12 is kind of a little bit of a, it pulls it right out of the middle of a whole list of things that we should be doing as Christians, kind of lifestyle things. Um, but Romans 12, 13, distributing to the necessity of saints and given to hospitality. This is something that God says is important. His people are to be given to hospitality. But listen to this one in 1 Peter. Um, and again, this is actually talking to deacons. Deacons are to be given to hospitality. So the men in the room, hospitality isn't just, I mean, they're to initiate hospitality. Um, so use hospitality um, one to another without grudging. Have you ever been hospitable with a grudge? I, I mean, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it, it has been in my heart at times, but I ask the Lord to take it out. Um, so there's so much we could say, but because, can somebody tell me exactly, I should know, but what time does this class supposed to, does it stop at 1030? Okay, so I don't want to rush too much. Okay, so, you know, we could go, we could talk a lot about examples from scripture, right, that where hospitality was given. Um, think of how different it would be if Abraham hadn't extended hospitality to angels, unaware, right? Um, Lot. What if Lot had not insisted on having those men come to his house? Would they have rescued him? No, probably not. Um, Abigail, that's one of my favorite stories. Her husband did not 
extend the customary hospitality that he should have. And he got David and his men pretty upset. And Abigail, with that hospitable spirit, came and just was like oil on the water. Um, Mary and Martha, if they hadn't extended hospitality, where would Jesus have spent, oh, so many hours? Mrs. White has a bit to say about how Jesus found in their home such sweet fellowship. So, God does want us to be hospitable. Here's a quote from the Spirit of Prophecy. If you have God's presence and possess earnest, loving hearts, a humble home made bright with air and sunlight and cheerful with the welcome of unselfish hospitality will be to your family and to weary travel traveler a heaven below. So it's not just for the travelers, it's, it's for us too. Um, so as we, as we share quotes and as I share thoughts, I want you to think back to those excuses of why we don't. It's expensive, we're busy, and I just want you to see, you know, our home isn't what it should be. Um, I want you to just see that God is going to, through his word, attack every one of those um, objections. Thank you. The privilege granted Abraham and Lot is not denied to us. By showing hospitality to God's children, we too may receive his angels into our dwellings. Even in our day, angels in human form enter the homes of men and are entertained by them. Now this next sentence is what hit me the most in all my preparation. And Christians who live in the light of God's countenance are always accompanied by unseen angels. And these holy beings leave behind them a blessing in our homes. It is not just about entertaining the stranger. It is not just about entertaining, you know, those in need. This is talking about fellowship one with another. How encouraging. What an encouragement to me um, that concept has been. So I'm going to give you just some principles. Um, I think I have four <laughs> that can help. These have helped me. I mean, I will say this. We have at our house um, a lot of company. And many times, especially probably in the early years, I struggled with some of these things, and the Lord would impress upon my mind, this is not about you. You know, you, it's your pride that is in the way. That is such a big issue with us. So these things are things that God has taught me that have helped make opening my home for you, if you came, as easy as opening it for my married kids when they come home. It's, it's just that simple. And that is to keep it simple. And I want to tell you about this picnic that we had. I wished I could share with you a bit of the video, but it's a good thing I didn't have that planned. Um, this was our, we, in November, John and Caleb and I went to R Romania for the first European Agriculture Conference. The first European Agriculture Conference. And this man on the right 
um, is someone, we met their family when we had been in Romania a year before, and so we wanted to spend some time with them. They were just getting ready to start a restaurant, and that's a whole different story. Um, but they took us to their home, and I'm thinking, what are we going to eat for lunch? You know, I try to always think ahead for my guys because they're always hungry, and um, Caleb has hollow legs. And so anyway, in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, we'll stop and we'll get something to eat. And this this man, Soren, is his name. We're driving along, and he's talking about lunch and talking about, yeah, well, I think we'll just stop over there. And all of a sudden, we literally just pull off of the paved road into a farmer's field where there's all these hundreds of bales. They just baled hay, round bales. And I'm like, and, and we're really driving way across the field. And I'm thinking, does he know there's a restaurant over there? <laughs> I, I couldn't imagine what he was doing. And he just stopped in the midst of these hay bales, there were three truck cars traveling together, and they all started unloading, and I'm saying, wow, I can eat here? <laughs> they, they opened, I mean, we opened our cars, and we all brought out what we had. I mean, I, brought, I had peanuts. That's an American thing. I had peanuts to contribute. But they had, you know, crackers and, you know, juice and... Super, super simple. But there was two families, and we had a lovely time. It was no stress, very simple, and, and very enjoyable. <laughs> we had lots of laughing and lots of fun. Poverty need not shut us up from showing hospitality. We are to impart what we have. There are those who struggle for a livelihood and who have great difficulty in making their income meet their necessity. But they love Jesus in the person of his saints and are ready to show hospitality to believers and unbelievers, trying to make their visits profitable. This is an extension of that quote. Brethren and sisters, invite to your home those who are in need of entertainment and kindly attention. Make no parade, but as you see their necessity, take them in and show them genuine Christian hospitality. There are precious privileges in social intercourse. And I just want to back up and say, you know, she uses the word entertainment. She's not using it in the way we do it. You know, Aunt Ruth said entertainment was to impress and hospitality was to bless. Um, but I would also add that entertainment means you're coming and I have to do something that's going to make you have a good time. Um, I've got to create some, some activity. I've got to take you to show you the sights of Nashville or, you know, I've got to entertain you. Um, and that's not what hospitality is about. Hospitality is about come on. This is what we're doing. You're welcome to join us. Um, it was very interesting to us years ago. We were at a camp meeting, and we said to a family, come see us sometime. And they took us up on that, and we got a phone call. 
and they um, wanted to come visit us. And I kid you not, we did not know this family well enough to even know the names of their children. And they're coming and we think, now what are their names? And, and, oh, and none of us could come up with all their names. And I literally called a friend who knew them and said, can you please tell me their names? Well, this family traveled and had very exotic vacations. And they came and they spent about five days on the farm and their kids said to them, this was the best vacation we've ever had. You know, guess what we did? We worked. <laughs> we worked in the garden. <laughs> but we did, let's see, that would have been like March or April, so it was too cold to swim in the pond, but we did um, play soccer. <laughs> we did play games. You know, we, we, we love to play games. In our family, we love to play interactive games. And so we did that, and so all those things are just fun, but they're very simple. So the first key is to keep it simple. The second key is to be authentic. That's something that we have a hard time with usually. Now, you might think these pictures have nothing to do, but that's pretty authentic if you understand that picture. So this here is, is our blueberry patch. <laughs> Um, and you can't really see it because this was two summers ago when, and it probably could have been taken this summer too, <laughs> when the busyness of life just took over us. And I mean, we could not find, hardly find the blueberry patch. Um, and we had these, we have this terrible weed, Johnson grass. And, and this is, those of you who knew, know about rhizomes, you know, they travel into the ground. This is the root of that grass. And, and I'm, I'll trust you, it's broken here. This is not the whole thing. I mean, it goes, it's terribly invasive. But I say that because sometimes our houses are a bit like this, you know? And do we say, no, we're going to shut the door? Sorry. You know, sorry, I can't, you can't see my mess. You know, um, we had the privilege of having a family come um, right before this conference. They were coming to see our son. And um, I said, they're, yeah, they can stay in our house. We're going to be gone. We're leaving on Sunday, and they're coming on Sunday. So um, they came on Sunday, and you know how it is when you're getting ready to go, you know. I mean, everything is turned upside down, and, you know. Just said, well, come on in. In fact, I wasn't even there when they got there. I had run up to see my daughter, and the, I knew they were going to come to uh, the floor hadn't been swept, and there was stuff all over, and I just thought, you know what? It's me. It's, my house isn't always the way I want it to be. Um, and so um, when I got home, she was there to greet me, and, you know, John had been there to, to welcome them. But we have to be authentic. Unwise economy and artificial customs. That's, that's not authentic. Artificial is the opposite of authentic. Unwise economy and artificial customs often prevent the exercise of hospitality where it is needed and would be a blessing, not just to the receiver, but to the giver. The regular supply of food for our tables should be such that the unexpected guest can be made welcome without burdening the housewife to make extra preparations. 
Uh, that's something I'm still working on. Uh, that just being ready for extra at any time. You know, I think if we had that attitude, God would bring those extras. But because we're not ready, his hands are tied. Uh, let us untie the Lord's hands. Here's a plea. I implore you, my brethren, in every place, rid yourself of your icy coldness. Encourage in yourself a love of hospitality, a love to help those who need help. You know, I think as we, as we draw closer to Christ, he puts in our heart that love. It just melts the ice. You know, I mean, I can tell you, when we were, in, um, we were at GYC, um, we were walking the streets and we met a young lady who was homeless. And, you know, let me say, this is nothing that I share. This is not about elevating self. I appreciated how Luke put it. If anyone's been blessed through our family or through us, praise be to God. So anyway, we met this young lady and talked to her, and she was begging. She wanted money, and we don't give money, um, which is more difficult, to be quite honest, um, because it takes more of yourself. And so I had, um, so we, we were going to eat, actually, and we said, well, you want to come eat with us? And so she did. She came to eat. She was the age of my daughter, and it just broke my heart to think, you know, you, you can not, not always trust their stories, um, but the story she shared with us was very heart-wrenching. And, you know, I know there are a lot of homeless people who really do need our help. Um, one other situation about a homeless person, my husband was at a delivery not long ago, and a man came up, just not one of our customers, and just said, can you help me? We, our car was stolen, and we need, we need to, um, money for a bus ticket. We need to get to Nashville, and we're going to such and such. A, and John said, well, I can't, I can't give you that money, but if you want me to take you to Nashville, I'll do that. And they said, well, we, we're not ready to go today. But, and so my husband gave him our phone number, and um, call me if you need a ride to Nashville. Well, so he didn't even tell me anything like that. He doesn't, I get a phone call on Friday afternoon from somebody saying, I met your husband in town yesterday, and he said that he would um, drive me to Nashville to catch the bus. Well, that sounds just like my good husband. <laughs> I love that. He's given to hospitality. So I said, well, let me, let me write. He was working. I ran out, and I, I gave him the message that this man had called. And, you know, there's always that temptation. Oh, I'm just in the middle of something. It's Friday afternoon. You know, that's why it's harder not to just give him the money. Anyway, he just dropped what he was doing, and he drove to Columbia a half hour, drove to Nashville an hour, another hour, drove home another hour. You know... They didn't ask for money. They didn't ask for the bus ticket. They had the bus ticket. Um, God wants us to get rid of that icy coldness. But it takes, it takes time. All right. So the first key is simplicity. 
The second key is being authentic. The third key is gardening. <laughs> gardening is a key. And I, I tell you, these are our strawberries. I'm proud of what God does. Aren't they beautiful? I mean, we can't make them like that. I mean, we take them to market. Everybody grows, all market growers pretty much grow the same variety of strawberries. And people say, yours are the best strawberries. I've tasted other ones at this market. And what all I can say is, praise God. <laughs> These are prayed over berries. That's the only thing I can say. Um, praise God. But when we take those to market, um, they're not always that abundant. Not, they're not always that overflowing. But we get $4 a pint for those. Let me tell you, my family can down a flat of strawberries, 12 pints, just like that. I could never afford to give you strawberries if you came to my house, <laughs> unless I grew them. And I should have the quote in here that Mrs. White, if you're not familiar with it, you find it. She says that we can eat like kings and queens. And there are so many times when we have sat around our table and I have looked at the food that God gives and thought, it's number one, so beautiful. Number two, it's so plentiful. Number three, we grew it. So it's affordable. It's affordable to us. So I have, just before we came, I had some company. Now, it's only three at home now, okay? So I'm gonna tell you what we had for lunch. The 10 of us, there were 10 of us. Um, I used to make our lunch, we had greens, five bunches of greens. Those greens would cost $15. I'm not gonna put it all up here because I, I didn't have time to get it in the right order. So I'm gonna tell it to you and then I'll show it to you for the punchline, okay? so. Five bunches of greens, organic greens, that's $15. Two pounds of organic corn that I had taken out of the freezer. I mean, conservatively, that's $5. Organic corn was, I, I don't ever buy it, so I don't really know what it costs. Um, <laughs> organic salad, I did five bags of four ounces each, so that's $15. These are the prices that we get there, market prices. Um, Organic radishes and organic turnips, that's another $5. Organic rice, $3. Organic beans, $5. So now that gives you an idea. I had, this is for company, we had 10 people, so we had beans and rice. That is common fare at our house, especially when I have company, especially when I have company. Um, and we had with that beans and rice a big salad and corn. Um, and I'll, I just, because I think I have time, I'm just going to interject who that company was. So our family has had the privilege of being involved with death row inmates um, in Tennessee. And the man that we visited for 15 years, amazing, godly man, Seventh-day Adventist for over 20 years, a man we aspire to be like was executed by the state of Tennessee in May. That has had such an impact on our life, that, that privilege. And so since his death, we have 
as a family been kind of looking at, you know, okay, you know, John and I are saying, how, how do we want to be involved with the prison now? Because we had our, the last visit that he had with outsiders other than his lawyer was with John and I. The warden granted us, well, John was his spiritual advisor, so he was with him all the days up to execution. But the warden, warden allowed me to go in with John for the last visit just a few hours before Don's execution. And when we asked him, what, you know, what do you want to, what's your final charge for us? He said, don't forget the men on death row. And so we've committed to that, that hospitality. I mean, it's hospitality wherever we go, whether it happens in our home or whether we take it out, it's hospitality. And so we've just been really praying about how to be involved with this, this need. And so we invited the, the, a lady who's involved with um, alternatives to the death penalty. And so we had gotten to know her through the execution time, through the lead up. Um, and so we told her, we'd like to have you out to our house, come out and have a meal with us. And, and let's talk about how, how we can be involved. So our whole family was there and she was there with us. Um, so I got a little sidetracked there, but that's how, that's, that was this 10, 10 people to a meal. So the meal, if I had purchased it, would have cost $48. So here's, here's my cost, $8. <laughs> Do you think that you could afford hospitality like that? I mean, that's less than a dollar a person for a meal because we grew the greens, we grew the corn, we grew the salad, we grew the radishes and the turnips. You know, and, and some people would say, well, you know, you did work. It wasn't free food. Well, that's true. But God has encouraged us to be in the garden. And I believe that part of the reason he's encouraged us to be in the garden is because he has called us to the ministry of restoration. And that ministry of restoration needs to happen in our homes, in the confines of our homes. Restoration and hospitality go hand in hand, right? So it's the gospel that we've been given. That's, that, that scripture is, I think, 1 Corinthians 5, I should know it, but... 14, some, something in there, 1st or 2nd Corinthians verse 5, I mean chapter 5 verse 14, um, that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. And so that ministry um, is about hospitality. But here's the thing that I love, is that God, for every bidding, he gives the enabling, right? So I want to ask you something. How many of you are familiar with the concept of second tithing? Some. Well, I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. So the concept of the second tithe was something that God gave to the children of Israel, and it was for the purpose of joining together for the feasts. And so it was God's way to provide for making sure that people would come gathering for the feasts. And, and for the poor to be able to join in the feasts. So God gave the command for us to give the 10% for the Levites and then the free will offerings, but beyond the free will offerings is the 10% that 
that he gave, he asked the children of Israel to give for these gatherings, but not for the gatherings alone. And this is what I love. This is, this is about second tithing. Every third year, speaking of the second tithe, however, this second tithe was to be used at home in entertaining the Levite and the poor. As Moses said, that they may eat within thy gates and be filled, Deuteronomy 26, 12. This tithe, tithe would provide a fund for the use of charity and hospitality. Here's another one. This tithe, well, sorry, I've, that's from before, okay. This tithe would provide a fund for the use of charity and hospitality. The contributions required of the Hebrews for religious and charitable purposes amounted to fully one-fourth of their income. So heavy a tax upon the resources of the people might be expected to reduce them to poverty. But on the contrary, the faithful observance of these regulations was one of the conditions of their prosperity. Don't you just love that? I can just get so excited when I talk about God's economy. His economy is about prosperity. And it's about taking the little that we have and multiplying it. You know, don't ever feel that you can't bring somebody around your table because you don't have enough food. Invite them anyway and you just watch. God always multiplies what is there. I don't think we ever have to worry about that. So. God has provided for us in so many ways. And I want to challenge you. I, had, I was going to print out for you, but in the end I decided, no, I want to challenge you. You need to make your own study of hospitality. Go into the Ellen White, um, E.G. White writings online, where you can, um, you can you can reduce the search to her life works. I always, when I do a study, I always try to, to get the, comp, the compilations, which have their place and are a blessing, but I try to, um, to get to the original sources or the things that she wrote in her lifetime. There's still quite a bit of, um, of duplication there because she wrote for the Review or she wrote for Signs of the Times. Um, so there's a fair bit of overlap still, but go in and make a study of hospitality. There's a lot, there's not a huge amount, but there was maybe, I went through about just under 300 quotes, and oh, such encouragement. And I also, a lot of them came from the testimonies because she would write specifically to specific people who needed that counsel. And I've often wondered, I challenge you to read the testimonies, um, desire of ages, these things were given for us to, to share, but the testimonies were given for us as a people. And this year I've committed, I'm going to listen to them audio. But I often think when I'm listening to them, how would I feel if that testimony came to me? You know, would I have the humility to accept it? Um, and so when I read them, I sometimes think about it being me, especially the ones that I read. I thought, oh, that's me. And I go back and think, okay, dear Pam, <laughs> you know, oh, how would I accept that? So, 
Lord, help us to, to have a humble spirit. So, we have a few minutes for, for question and answer. I'm going to share one last. Um, I love gathering one-liners. That's kind of one of the things I love to do in my devotional time whenever I read, because it's just like, ooh, it just hits you. And on, you know, something, it's like, you don't need any of the, uh, I, you don't need to remember anything else that I have said. But here's my one-liner that I want to leave you with from Signs of the Times. Hospitality should be practiced. I mean, I don't think I could say it more simple. Um, it's, it's, a, it's something that God asks us to do. It's not something that we maybe want to do. But I think just there in the quotes we've read, the things that we have addressed, finances are no excuse. I loved Luke and Shantae's message yesterday about the, um, when Luke said, um, I want to have them home. And Shantae's like, oh, I don't know, have food. And he said to her, do you know what he said? Well, I could go ask mom. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, that for a, for a yeah, that's hard to have your mother-in-law fill the need that your husband wants to be filled. Um, but his comment, well, the Bible tells us you can go and ask for the bread. Do you know Mrs. White has a quote where she specifically addresses that? And she says, if you don't have, go to someone who does and ask them to help you fill the need. I mean, who of us would feel comfortable with that? I mean, I live in, on a family farm. My mother-in-law is there. John's parents live there. His brother lives there. And I mean, we, if anybody could go to their neighbor um, to provide a need for hospitality, I, I could do that. And, and I have sometimes when I don't have what I need. We, we are very free to share on the farm. But um, yes, may you be challenged and may you be inspired that God desires our homes to be a center of influence. And you need to ask God exactly, how, does, how do you want that to look for me? So are there any questions? One here. The basic question is, if your home is dysfunctional, is that an excuse? <laughs> you know, we were just arguing. Um, remember, we talked about being authentic. It's not... You're not going to invite people because you have it all together and you're perfect. So in that case, if we were in that situation and we were having stress in the home and we knew we had somebody coming, we would, it would be my, and I don't remember this happening like with the kids, but, but sometimes, you know, with my husband and I or whatever, this is what I would do today, okay? We would just kneel and say, Lord, forgive us. You know, forgive us for just what happened. We know you are wanting to discourage. We, we know you want us to do hospitality. We know the devil is seeking to discourage. And so you just have to surrender it. You know, when I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light to me. So don't wallow. You know, admit you're wrong. Ask for forgiveness and go on. It's, it's that simple. You don't have to wallow in it. So, so don't let... Don't let the, yeah, don't, don't let our weakness, our human weakness, um, keep us from being hospitable. But I do want to say this. I have known families and I have known couples 
who had such problems getting along that the, the best thing that they could do was always to have people with them. Now that also I would have to, I would have to caution against. You don't want, um, you can't use entertaining to, to cover up some internal problems. So if there are internal problems, by God's grace and by his strength, sort them out and get help. Don't wait until you have a volcano. Just when you have a little hill, work it through. Okay, so don't use entertainment and hospitality as a pacifier or a, a band-aid to cover up some other deeper issues. I, I knew someone, and, and, when, and they were close to me, and when they divorced, um, they said to me, why do you think we were always with other people? So that's a balance. Okay, question here. You said there were four points and you gave us three. Did I give you three? And, but I didn't have a, you know, maybe, I think that that's all. I, I wavered with the last one. I think what it was was that the fourth one was the, the second tie. Then I realized that really wasn't a point. And so I took that off. So that was my fourth. But that's God's solution, right? The, for us, the three points are simplicity, authenticity, and the garden. Those are the things that we need in place to help make hospitality more possible. Okay, question there. Ah, okay, how do we handle guests? When, yes, so when, when we have guests that come and, and they have children who are glued to iPads, well, I'll tell you how the Dysinger is handled. It's very simple. We have no Wi-Fi at our house. <laughs> and I'm going to recommend that to you. That was very intentional on our parts. You know, we, we, did, we did our best, the best that we knew how to do at the time, to keep our children safe. And that, for us, meant we don't have good service where we live. And so we use our phones as our hotspots. I know all of you are familiar with that concept. And so in order to have service at my house, I have to put my phone in the window and turn on my hotspot for you. And so that for us really, I think, was a shield of protection for our children because they didn't have the ability. Now, when they got their own phones when they were older, then we had to deal with it other ways. But um, what would I do if I had that challenge? Um, you know, I would. I think that I would have to just ask company, especially if it was with children. You know, if if you would, I don't know how do you say it. No, we, we we in our in our home we well. Let me just say this: my husband and I, we want in our home when we have children when we have grandchildren, we want a no device. We want a no device rule. And I think our kids will be okay with that. We don't want our grandchildren and our children to come and see us and just be on their phones all the time. Because at some point we might have, you know, internet in our house. But, you know, in the world there's that concept, put a basket by the door. Please put your device in here as you, and this is a device-free home. We want to get to know you. How do we, you know, we want to get to know you. So you want to... You, you want to state it in as positive a way as you can. You don't want to be negative, and you, for sure, you don't want to put them down 
for their parenting philosophies. But in your own home, you have the, you have the privilege of setting the rules. And you don't have to call it a rule. You can just say, in our home, um, we're device-free. You know, we don't, we don't have our children on devices, and so we'd appreciate it if, if, while your children are here, you could maybe just put the devices away. And I have plenty of toys that our kids can interact and get to know one another. Chelsea. Right here, you know, we don't wear yes, so just an observation, and I think it's a very good one. When our children were little, we, we tried to, to not just, um, they didn't just run off and play with the other people's children. You know, we tried to make activities um, as a family. We tried to do things together. So we have to, that, that's a principle to be proactive. Don't get into a situation, prevent it from happening. Okay, back here. Just try to... Absolutely. Yeah, so what do you do with other people's children who are maybe a little more rambunctious and a little bit more... Um, you know, all of these things have to be handled with such grace. You know, and so for, for me, the, the out of doors is the solution, you know? And my husband would often take part of, a large part of the responsibility when we had company because... Um, he would take the kids outside, and I would maybe have things to do inside. But so again, being proactive, having something planned. Um, and you know, sometimes if you feel comfortable with it and you feel like you can, um, you know, just get down on that little one's level and say, you know what, and, and I, I'd rather you not do that at my house. You know, like jumping on the couch. You know, in my house, we don't jump on the couch. I, I appreciate it if you wouldn't jump on the couch. So if you do it in a nice way, parents aren't usually offended. The, the challenge is if, you're, if, if you don't handle it in the right way, and then you have parents, mama bears, who are going to attack. Okay, Vernon. Oh, you all have lots of tough questions. <laughs> Living in close proximity where you have people with different values and, and friends with... Relatives. Well, um, I mean, I live on a family farm, and there, between my children and my nieces, and I have a nephew and a niece, and each of their families, and my mother-in-law and my father. I know about that, and I think that, that you just have to again, you know, you have to go to the Lord and ask for wisdom. But sometimes you have to limit association even if it's family, and that's a hard thing. But you, you're responsible for that flock. And it, you know, if, if you have a neighbor that's, you know, you don't wanna be unhospitable, but you have to also have some boundaries that protect your family. And so, you know, like for, for my youngest, um, you know, if he had, he has friends around, it was an understanding that you come by invitation, you know? You don't just, you don't go by invitation, without an invitation, and they don't come without an invitation for the most part. Now, as he's grown older, you know, and I, and he, things change, okay? There's seasons where you have to really be, you know, I don't want to say more careful, that sounds bad, but that's the truth. When you have little children, you know, but as they grow and, they, and, and your confidence in their good choices grows, yes, they should have more freedom. 
You know, we don't want to, you can't just keep them like this, otherwise you're going to have a big problem. Um, so I think that's really, um, maybe one more. <sighs> okay, well, all right, so on the second tithe, I would encourage you this, to study it. It's very clear, Deuteronomy, it's very clear that that tithe was for the second tithe. I mean, it even says that a tenth is for the Levites, Levites. But then another tenth was to be given to bringing the poor and to going, you know, to being able to attend. And I'll tell you, we didn't always use the second tithe in that way, but um, there were times where our family would not have been able to attend any spiritual meetings if it weren't for that second tithe that we felt free to apply to being able to go to that. So, and as far as adult children, um, when, when you have adult children that are living at home, I had children, adult children living at home to their, their marriage, into their 20s. Um, and when we had company, I didn't have the same, I, I gave them liberty. You know, they're adults, they have a life of their own, they have maybe businesses of their own, and so we need to just be very careful in how we handle adult children who live at home. And, you know, obviously, you know, my, my kids would always attend worship, and if we had company, they would interact there, or meals. But um, you, expectations, and that's a whole different topic, but expectations really kill relationships. I'll just say that. Where we can give liberty and not have a lot of expectations, our relationships will be much better. All right, let's, let's just close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we just thank you for being such a loving and a merciful Father. You are to be honored and glorified in our lives and in our homes. And we want nothing more than to reflect you. We want nothing more than to do as you've asked us, and that is to carry a message of reconciliation to the world. And so, Father, I just pray that you would help this message to be applied in whatever way you know is best in each of these individuals' lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.